Hello, and thank you for listening to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. Before we begin, it's important to note that this podcast was recorded prior to the European Society of Cardiology, or ESC, 2023 Congress. Since the recording, the 2023 ESC guidelines for the management of patients across a spectrum of acute coronary syndromes have been released. These latest guidelines feature new Class 2A and Class 1 recommendations that may influence your clinical practice. Of particular focus is the importance of antithrombotic therapy, invasive assessment and revascularization strategies, and the recommendations for long-term management, including the use of lipid-lowering therapy and combination therapy during the index ACS hospitalization. Please refer to your local guidelines and relevant prescribing information for the most up-to-date information. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is George Cooper. I'm a medical writer and podcast host. And throughout this episode, we'll be discussing best practice in identifying the right treatment for patients with complex atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or ASCVD with reference to the newly updated treatment guidelines. We've got lots of topics to cover. And we'll first discuss some common ASCVD risk factors and tips in treating ASCVD patients with a residual risk. We'll then move on to some of the trials around secondary ASCVD treatments, touching upon recent updates to treatment guidelines before rounding up with a few patient case studies. Now, I am delighted to be joined by Professor Lale Tokuzola, who is past president at the European Atherosclerosis Society and the professor of cardiology at Hacettepe University in Ankara, Turkey. Professor Tokuzola, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. And I'm also joined by Dr. Pierre Sabouret, who is president of the National College of French Cardiologists. Professor Sabouret, thank you for joining. How are you doing today? Fine. Thank you to be here and to invite us. Oh, the pleasure is all ours. Before we get started, just a few housekeeping notes. This podcast was funded by an educational grant from Amarin, who has had no input into the creation of this podcast. Right, we've got lots to cover. So let's start with some of the basics just to get into the flow. Uh, Professor Tokizola, in a nutshell, what is ASCVD? Atherosclerotic vascular disease is the leading cause of mortality in both men and women in most parts of the world. It affects uh, all the large and medium-sized arteries, and it's a risk-factor-driven chronic immunoinflammatory process. It's probably the disease with the longest incubation period because it starts at childhood uh, with exposure to risk factors like smoking, diabetes, uh, dyslipidemia, or high blood pressure. Uh, there is a progression, uh, initiation and progression of atherosclerotic vascular disease. And uh, dyslipidemia, especially LDL cholesterol, is very important in this process because it's the treatment of LDL cholesterol that drives uh, the inflammation as well as the other ApoB-containing lipoproteins. And ultimately, it may uh, result in acute coronary syndromes or a stroke. The global effect of this condition is, is obviously enormous. And uh, Dr. Sabre, what are some of the common first-line treatments for ASCVD that we see? As you know, first-line treatments are high-intensity statins. That means atorvastatin, 80 mg, or rosuvastatin. The discussion is about how to implement azetimibe 
in combination after before discharge in hospital, in my view and in view of our experts, that the best way to have a high intensity a decrease of LDL cholesterol, a profound decrease that provide early benefits and long-term benefits and that fight therapeutic inertia. And after, for patients who remain with LDL cholesterol above 70 milligrams per deciliter at one month or three months, you may introduce a PCSK9 inhibitor uh, with, with decrease by 50 to 60% uh, LDL from baseline in addition to high intensity statins and azetimibe. And the new option is for patients who have high triglyceride despite high intensity statin and azetimibe remains uh, EPA, which is a new uh, entry in the treatment of uh, high, in, uh, high risk patients. And more often than not, do patients respond to these first line treatments? As you know, uh, you are good responders and uh, bad responders to every treatment. So for statins, for example, uh, patients may be uh, good or bad responders. When you double the dose, you obtain just a further decrease of 8%, whatever you are good or bad responders. For this reason, we encourage the upfront treatment with uh, fixed combinations before discharge. And we may add to 10 to 15% of very high risk patients in secondary prevention, a PCSK9 inhibitor or uh, uh, equivalent with a new treatment uh, um, by Novartis, which decreased by 50% the LDL cholesterol in patients who are uh, with LDL above 70 milligrams per deciliter under upfront uh, strategy by high intensity statin and azetimibe. Thank you, Dr. Savare. And um, Professor Tokizola, you, you often hear the term residual risk when talking about um, patients with ASCVD. What, what is meant by this term exactly? Uh, in general, uh, the first thing we do is lowering LDL cholesterol. But even if we get to guideline recommended LDL cholesterol goals, uh, we do not completely abolish the risk. There is two types of residual risk. One is driven by the other risk factors besides uh, dyslipidemia, and that relates to hypertension, diabetes, uh, inflammation, uh, and all the others. Uh, there's also residual risk related to dyslipidemia. We know that all APOB-containing lipoproteins are atherogenic, and once we lower LDL cholesterol, we may still have increase triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, and increase LP little a. So unless we get rid of all these atherogenic lipoproteins, then we do not completely abolish risk. Uh, so by residual risk, uh, we uh, are talking about everything that remains once we get to LDL cholesterol goals, which are our primary targets. Diabetic, obese, and insulin-resistant patients are more likely to have uh, increased triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, uh, more inflammation, and residual uh, risk related to that. And increasingly, we're uh, understanding the importance of LP little a, which per se is another risk factor. All of these accumulate in the arterial wall and cause atherosclerosis. 
I see. So we're going to talk a little bit now about some of the secondary treatment options for ASCVD patients with, as as you said, um, Professor, high blood triglyceride levels. Um, I mean, these treatments can include uh, fibrates, niacin, fish oils. For this section of the podcast, I would like to go through each of these secondary treatment options and discuss their pros and cons, their mechanisms of action, and also some uh, evidence, um, whether it be clinical evidence or, or evidence that you have from your own practice, uh, supporting each one. So I, I would like to first begin with one of the uh, the most prominent groups, which is the omega-3 um, fatty acids. Um, Dr. Sabri, how, how would you define this group of, of, of drugs? Uh, it's an original mechanism of action, and it's in addition, it provides additional benefits uh, in combination with high-intensity statins, azetimibe, and eventually PCSK9 inhibitor in patients with residual high-LDL cholesterol. It's not mediated by the decrease of triglyceride. It's a unique uh, effect. We don't know exactly what are all the underlying mechanisms, but it provides clearly benefits, and the higher is the risk, the higher are the benefits. It was uh, reported in the U.S. Uh, uh, court, so it's very impressive to see these results for the first recurrent event and also for recurrent event during follow-up. So it's completely a new part of the treatment in uh, coronary patients or after an ischemic stroke. And if I may add, uh, we don't know uh, why these are beneficial, but we know that in high doses, they somehow lower triglycerides. They have anti-inflammatory, anti-thrombotic effects, and they increase something called resolvents, which we think uh, are beneficial uh, for the plaque. So they have a especially DHA and EPA, which are the marine-derived omega-3 fatty acids, uh, they have several uh, beneficial effects on the plaque, which may be responsible uh, for their uh, cardiovascular effects. Professor Tokizola, I would, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. There seems to be a lack of consensus among uh, your peers regarding the application of these omega-3 fatty acids in cardiac vascular diseases. Um, well, why, why do you think this is? Well, first of all, we know that low-dose omega-3 fatty acids do not work at all. Uh, the over-the-counter ones have very low doses of EPA, and we think that having a high dose of EPA is the more uh, protective component. So first of all, the supplements are out. You have to have a real high-dose EPA drug. Uh, the second thing is that there were two major uh, studies, maybe Pierre will uh, talk more in detail about them. The reduce it uh, trial with a high dose EPA significantly reduced cardiovascular events in around 8,000 high risk patients on top of a statin. Whereas the strength trial, this time using DHA plus EPA uh, combination, uh, in 13,000 high-risk patients failed to do so. Uh, so uh, because of this uh, controversy, uh, the uh, thoughts uh, were uh, confused. However, uh, the 2021 prevention guidelines of the European Cardiology Society are recommending that 
uh, once you are at LDL goal, uh, if you still have high triglycerides and you are at high risk of events, you may use, uh, that is a class 2B indication, which means you may use high dose IPA. Uh, Professor Sabare, I was wondering whether you had anything to add on the reducer study in particular, which looked at high dose purified EPA and the the evidence that came from that study. So, uh, as you know, we have three randomized clinical trials. You have uh, Jellies, who was an open uh, trials performed in Japan, who report uh, cardiovascular benefits with EPA. And after you have randomized clinical trials, uh, reduce it and reduce it report impressive results to by a re- reduction of major events and recurrent events, and the higher was the baseline risk, the higher were the benefits. So it's very crucial to use only 4 grams per day of EPA, so high dose of purified EPA, because strength was a negative study. And these data have been taken in consideration in guidelines, not only European guidelines, but also American guidelines in National Lipid Association, and also recently in NICE guidelines. So uh, the evidence is here. We need to use four grams per day of EPA in patients with remaining high triglyceride levels above 1.5 grams per liter. Understood. And is there, how do you decide which uh, patients with residual risk would be suited to um, EPA or indeed DHA? Is it how, how do you make those decisions within your practice? Uh, in practice, you know that therapeutic inertia is a main issue uh, everywhere, not only in Europe, but also in other countries. In order to improve and to fight therapeutic inertia, we use the upfront strategy with high-intensity statins and ezetimibe before discharge after an ischemic stroke or an acute coronary syndrome, we check the lipid profile at one month. And if patients keep a level of triglyceride above 1.5 grams per liter, we may introduce EPA at 4 grams per day. And I was curious, what are the main differences between sort of DHA and EPA within the omega-3 classification? Uh, They're both marine-derived omega-3 fatty acids, Uh, but there are some uh, minor differences that are being uh, understood recently. So everybody was trying to understand why there was such a discrepancy between the uh, reduced and strength trials. And uh, there there have been uh, found some uh, minor differences between them. Uh, For example, EPA uh, stabilizes the membranes, whereas DHA does not. And small studies have shown that uh, EPA uh, is associated with attenuated uh, pericoronary uh, fat attenuation, which is thought to be an indicator of inflammation. But in the small study, uh, DHA was not. So they do have subtle uh, differences, although they're both uh, omega-3 fatty acids. So this was one of the uh, reasons for the difference between the studies. And when you give a 4-gram DHA plus EPA, the EPA dose is automatically less. 
And we uh, seem to think, especially after the RESPECT trial, that the main benefit is coming from uh, the EPA. But the issue is still not resolved. And uh, the choice of placebo may have affected the results uh, slightly, but it would not have affected the outcome. Uh, so uh, the jury is still out there about why there are so many differences. And with reference to the newly updated guidelines, how would you recommend your, your fellow physicians use these within their practice on deciding which of these omega-3s to, to, to use as a secondary treatment? All the guidelines are recommending only high-dose EPA, and ethyl. The other is not in the guidelines because of the negative studies. I'm now going to move on to uh, fibrates, if you uh, don't mind. So, Professor Tokuzola, how would you describe uh, this category of, of drugs? Uh, fibrates have been around for a long time. Uh, they're PPR-alpha agonists, and uh, they have uh, beneficial effects on the lipid profiles, such as lowering triglycerides, significantly increasing HDL, and decreasing small-dense LDL. Uh, they also have uh, beneficial effects on uh, microvascular function, as demonstrated by uh, several studies in diabetic patients. Uh, so uh, they have been used around uh, for a long time. Uh, but uh, in large studies in diabetics, such as Accordin Field, they uh, failed uh, to reduce cardiovascular events in the whole group. But when you look at the subgroup who had high triglycerides and low HDL, they significantly lowered cardiovascular outcomes. So we had been using them uh, for a while to reduce triglycerides, decrease pancreatitis, as well as uh, reducing cardiovascular outcomes based on the subgroup analysis. The recent prominent trial, which is a selective PPAR uh, agonist, uh, Hemofibrate looked at patients with high triglycerides and low HDL, but failed to document uh, any benefit. So now uh, there is some uh, confusion about uh, how, when, and which fibrate uh, to use. In the European guidelines, they remain as a maybe used uh, indications. They're certainly very helpful for microvascular events in patients uh, with uh, diabetes. But uh, the prominent trial cast a doubt about uh, their use uh, for cardiovascular protection. However, in the prominent trial, LDL cholesterol was increased slightly, whereas the phenofibrate uh, trials lowered LDL cholesterol. And we believe that you need to lower LDL cholesterol to get the cardiovascular benefit. It was interesting. Um, I believe you're referring to Dr. Pra, um, Praden's study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, so it, it found that the uh, Pima uh, fibrate reduced triglyceride levels, but not the incidence of cardiovascular events. Uh, I mean, what do you what do you believe that this these results suggest um, in terms of using uh, Pima fibrate within your practice? Uh, we wrote an editorial uh, on it on the European Heart Journal, and uh, we believe that uh, you need to uh, get rid of uh, all the apoB containing uh, lipoproteins and need to clear them. So what uh, Pima fibrate uh, did was uh, convert uh, the triglyceride-rich uh, lipoproteins to LDL, but not, did not clear it completely from the circulation. So it turned the knob halfway and not all the way. 
uh, we think that uh, that is the reason. Uh, and LDL cholesterol did not uh, decrease, but was increased in that, unlike other fibrate trials. That's a, uh, it's a very nice analogy there. Um, and Dr. Sabare, how would you like to briefly touch upon um, these drugs' mechanism of action? How, how do they work? Now, for phenofibrates, uh, in our view, uh, all data are, are negative in terms of reduction of cardiovascular events. For, so we don't use uh, phenofibrate, even if it was very popular in France when I was uh, younger. And when you look at the field study also, so you have a field study, you have a prominent study, and all results are negative in terms of cardiovascular prevention. So uh, for us, in our view of cardiologists with clinical practice, uh, fibrates are useful to decrease the risk of pancreatitis when it's above uh, 10 grams per liter, but not to reduce cardiovascular events in high-risk patients. And we have so many treatments to implement in order to reduce uh, recurrent events that it's not our priority to prescribe fibrous. In, in, in terms of adherence, we need to use fixed combination with proven benefits and uh, to add uh, over treatments. For example, for diabetic patients who have a GLP-1 receptor agonist, the uh, SGLT2 inhibitor, uh, we have now uh, many uh, lipid lowering treatment or modulation uh, with EPA, we have also to focus on modulation of inflammation as underlined uh, by uh, lalotoxoglu. So we have so many treatments to initiate or to implement or to reinforce, but fibrates are not part of our treatment, actually. Understood. And how do the current updates to the guidelines reflect on fibrate use? Is it does it reflect your your what you just said? Uh, for me, the, the, the role of fibrous uh, is completely marginal. So we just to keep this for patients with very high triglyceride uh, level, but not to cardiovascular protection, but more to protect from pancreatitis. The European guidelines have not been updated since the prominent trial, but in the current guidelines, which were published in 2021, fibrates are class 2b indications similar uh, to omega-3 fatty acids. But after prominent, things may change. Thank you, Professor. And I'd like to move on now to um, a different drug, which is uh, niacin. And uh, it, what evidence is there for niacin as a secondary treatment for ASCVD? Uh, it's not in the guidelines anymore because it causes uh, more harm uh, than benefit. Uh, although it does uh, reduce triglycerides, uh, it's not used and it's not recommended in the guidelines in Europe anymore. In US, I think it's still used, but uh, it uh, the harmful effects like uh, IC hemorrhage uh, are very prominent, so we don't use it anymore. See, are, are any of the B vitamins used or are they generally d discarded? Well, vitamin D uh, was a hopeful prospect for a while because it regulates hundreds of genes and some of them are related to atherosclerotic vascular disease. Its deficiency leads to oxidation, proliferation, endothelial dysfunction, inflammation. And there were studies like the Intermountain or the Copenhagen study showing that if it was very low, below 20, uh, cardiovascular disease and hypertension increased. So that started a group of uh, scientists uh, uh, with uh, vitamin D trials. 
so the question asked in these huge randomized trials was, does vitamin D supplementation decrease cardiovascular events? Because its deficiency does increase it. The VITAL study was the largest one in 24,000 patients giving, uh, I think, 2,000 uh, milligrams per day uh, vitamin D. And it showed no uh, difference whatsoever in cardiovascular outcomes. So there is no point in giving vitamin D to normal, healthy individuals. Of course, if vitamin D is low, it should be uh, supplemented for other reasons. And we know that patients who have low vitamin D levels have more statin intolerance than those who do not. But today, we definitely do not give vitamin D or any other vitamin to prevent atherosclerosis. Understood. Are there any other um, secondary treatments that you uh, you take into consideration when, when treating a patient with the residual risk? I'll, I'll throw this to both of you, but I'll start with you, Professor. Uh, so LP little is becoming increasingly important as a major risk factor, especially if the LP little is extremely high and if the patient's uh, risk is high. Uh, the European Atherosclerosis Society last year uh, published a consensus paper on the importance of LP little a. Currently, all we can do uh, for high LP little a patients is to manage all the other risk factors to decrease the huge risk. But coming up very soon are specific LP little a lowering therapies. And if they uh, have been shown to decrease cardiovascular outcomes, this will be another uh, tool in our armamentarium to decrease atherosclerosis. So we look forward to that. The other part is the inflammation part. And now uh, there are anti-inflammatory therapies that are being developed uh, specifically uh, to prevent atherosclerotic vascular disease. And ziltimekimab is one of them. The huge trial Zeus is looking into that to see uh, if we suppress inflammation uh, will cardiovascular outcomes be affected uh, positively? So we have a lot to hope for in the future uh, to get rid of other residual uh, risk factors. And per, uh, Dr. Sabare, are there any uh, treatments that you would like to, to add on to those that we've already discussed? Yeah, you have emerging therapies, very interesting, not always news, but for example, the inflammatory modulation seems crucial. Uh, we have benefits with uh, old colchicine, uh, with canakinumab, but it's very expensive and have some side effects. So uh, for chronic inflammatory disease, the cardiovascular risk is suboptimal and patients are not always adequately treated. So in my opinion, the immunomodulation and uh, immunoinflammation modulation are crucial in the next future in order to reduce ischemic events. We have also promising field with the proteomics, lipidomics, and polygenic risk score in order to better define the patients who have the very, very high risk and who benefit from intensive uh, therapies uh, in all fields. That means uh, lipids, uh, glycemic level, and uh, inflammation. Thank you, Dr. Sabare. I, I just wanted to ask before we wrap up, if there was the one piece of advice that you would like listeners to this podcast to take into their practice on how you decide the right secondary treatment for the right patient, 
what would you like your colleagues to think about when when in when processing and trying to come to that uh, conclusion? I'll start with you, uh, Professor. Please. Uh, my main message is getting to guideline recommended goals saves lives. First of all, get the patient to LDL cholesterol goal and make sure the patient stays there, and then uh, go for the secondary goal, which is non-HDL or if you're able to measure it, APOB. That covers all the atherogenic lipoproteins. Uh, and uh, that is a secondary goal as recommended in the European guidelines. Thank you, Professor Tokizola. And Dr. Sabare, if you would like uh, to pass on one piece of advice to your colleagues. For, for a practical approach, I advise to act early and go deeply. Why? because we have a lack of MD, lack of nurses, and therapeutic inertia is a major issue in every country. So before discharge, we should implement all treatments with proven benefits to reduce recurrent ischemic events already at the early phase. And if the treatments are not initiated during, uh, the, during the hospital phase, they are rarely initiated after. So it's crucial to implement all validated treatment as soon as possible. And as we discussed for inflammatory modulator, we will see this during follow-up. And for EPA, it's under high intensity statins. So we need to check patients with high triglyceride after they receive high intensity statins and azetimibe in most cases at one month or three months, but we don't have to lose time because when you lose time, we have recurrent events during this interval. Thank you, Dr. Sabare. I was just curious. So many of these secondary treatments that we've discussed are available over the counter. Omega-3 fish oils is a, a common dietary supplement. What's your opinion? And would you remend, uh, recommend even people take low doses of these daily as a supplement to prevent the development of CBD? Or as you suggested in the data earlier, in low doses, is it pretty much negligible? What's, I was just interested to hear your opinion, um, Professor. Definitely not. Uh, there is no evidence whatsoever that low-dose uh, supplementation of omega-3 fatty acids works. Interesting. I, just, I was just curious. I take omega-3 every day. I was just curious, as, as a, but really no point. It's very valuable information to hear. Thank you. That's the for this episode. Professor Tokizola, Dr. Sabare, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure speaking with both of you today. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you to all. And that concludes today's discussion. Thank you to my guests, Professor Tokizola and Dr. Sabare for joining me today and sharing their knowledge and expertise with our audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We release a new episode every Friday, as well as plenty of bonus episodes just like this one. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now. 